2: Welcome to Diffusion Science Radio, your finger on the scientific pulse. Hosting the show today will be myself, Emily Fern, and my good friend, Mr Ed. Mr Ed Pollitt, of course, of course. Whether you're joining us in Sydney on 2SER or on the community radio network across Australia, or if you've got us tucked away in a podcast file, strap yourselves in for a fantastic show featuring art smarts and the latest news. But up first is Patrick Ruby with news that covers the Pope, planets and pizza. Over to you, Pat.
4: The Pope has published his first reflections on evolution since taking office. The new book, titled Creation and Evolution, praises the progress gained by science but cautions that evolution is a topic that science alone cannot answer. The Pope asserts that faith and reason are interdependent, and that philosophical and scientific reasoning must work together without excluding faith. The book, which was released in German by the Sankt Ulrich Publishing House, includes the reflections of the Pope and others from a meeting of theological scholars at the Papal Summer Estate. Evolution remains a fiercely debated topic, especially in the United States. Looking beyond our own world, water has been detected for the first time in the atmosphere of a planet outside our solar system. Previous reports were unable to find evidence of water in the planet, known as HD 209458b, but Dr. Travis Barman of the Lowell Observatory in Flagstaff, USA, says there is strong evidence for water absorption in the planet's atmosphere. As a planet passes in front of a star... Different wavelengths of light are blocked by the planet's atmosphere. A giant planet appears larger in a specific part of the infrared spectrum when compared to the visible spectrum if it has water absorption in the planet's atmosphere. Dr Barman thinks that whilst there may be water in the atmosphere, it is highly unlikely that the planet will harbour life because it is a gaseous planet. So it seems that water in the atmosphere doesn't automatically mean there will be life on a planet. On the theme of planets, astrobiologists are claiming that plants on other planets may not be green like ours. Nancy Kiang of the NASA Goddard Institute for Space Sciences, New York, reports that plant colours depend on the type of light that reaches the plant's surface. Our own planet allows mainly red light and a bit of blue light through its atmosphere. Plants absorb strongly at these wavelengths and less strongly at the green wavelength, so plants appear green. For a planet with a sun brighter than ours, more UV light and blue light would penetrate. Plants would evolve to absorb more strongly at this end of the spectrum and reflect red, orange and yellow light, so plants would appear orange or yellow. Plants with suns less strong than ours would have dark coloured plants because there would be less visible light available and the plants would absorb as much light as possible. More about light. Light can be used to change the shape of crystals. Masahiro Irie of Kyushu University, Japan, and colleagues have developed a crystal that expands and twists when hit with the right shade of ultraviolet light. This is done by altering the molecular bonding within the crystal and creating a carbon ring that twists the crystal shape. The crystal can be switched back to its original shape by visible light. The crystal potentially has applications in light-triggered switches, valves and pumps, and could be a useful alternative to electricity-dependent switches. A new breakthrough in cuisine. Healthier pizza can be achieved by cooking a little bit longer and hotter than before. Jeffrey Moore and Liangli Lu Yu of the University of Maryland have been experimenting with increasing the antioxidants in the Universal Culinary Delight. Antioxidants reduce the amounts of free radicals in our bodies, molecular reactants which can damage our cells. Both an increase in time cooked and temperature increases antioxidant activity by substantial amounts. The Chicago-style deep dish pizza are particularly good for increasing antioxidants, but the researchers claim the same principles can be applied to other baked goods like bread.
3: Thank you, Patrick, for the Pope, the planets and the pizza. A punchy performance, pal, but pushing on. You may already know that birds migrate for the winter, but a new CSIRO report has found that fish and other marine life are heading south permanently. Changes to ocean temperatures are causing warm currents along Australia's east coast to flow further south and stay there. Diffusion's Darren Osborne spoke with CSIRO's Dr Tom Oakey about the changes to Australia's ocean environment and how it will affect our marine ecosystems.
5: Okay, I'm joined by CSIRO's Dr Tom Oakey, who's part of a report that's been released looking into the effects of climate change on the marine environment. Thanks for joining me, Tom.
6: Great to be here, Darren.
5: Now, uh, you and your colleagues have been looking into... Um, the effects that climate change have had in particular to the marine environment down the east coast of Australia. Can you explain, first of all, what exactly is happening um, in this part of the world?
6: Well, we've made an assessment of potential climate change impacts uh, to Australian marine life that is all of Australia. And it seems, you, you mentioned the east coast of Australia, one of the results or some of the results from our report indicate that the east coast of Australia and down into the Tasman Sea, the southeast part of Australia, along the coast and shelves there, uh, appear to be uh, the most uh, vulnerable in some ways to climate change impacts because some of the physical changes in the oceans are uh, projected or predicted to be uh, most uh, extreme there. That is, uh, for example, sea surface temperatures, uh, Uh, estimated to or projected to rise in the southeastern part and along the east coast of Australia because the East Australia current, which goes from north, the tropical areas, to the south, uh, is projected to increase in in intensity, Uh, and that is because of some changes in wind patterns that are happening in the southern part of the world.
5: So what are some of the biological changes that are happening on the east coast of Australia due to these changes in, in currents and temperatures?
6: Well, if some of these kinds of physical changes are happening uh, in Australia, and particularly on the east coast, perhaps, uh, we would expect um, changes in the ranges and distributions of some marine species. So there are uh, you know, some anecdotal uh, observations of changes in a number of fish species uh, that is shifting southward uh, distributions of some of the important commercial fish species, but other uh, fish species as well. The biology or the biota in the the southern part of Australia, the temperate regions, might be uh, quite vulnerable to these kinds of changes in the future because as these areas warm up, if there are tropical, uh, more tropical species that shift southward, there might be more competition for the uh, species that have adapted to and are, are very unique species uh, uh, in the southern part that have adapted to those areas, and they, they cannot shift southward in many cases because uh, the southern part of Australia is bounded geographically to the south.
5: Okay, so climate, but climate change skeptics would say that these changes have occurred throughout the Earth's history for, for millions of years. Why should we be concerned about these changes any more than those that have occurred through the Earth's history?
6: Well, we have to listen to those kinds of questions because, uh, and pay attention because it is very important to distinguish between uh, climate variability and, say, directional climate change that we might be concerned about in the scale of our experience. Uh, So it it is a question of scale really if the organisms that adapted to the particular conditions in Australia are suddenly exposed to more rapid change or rapid directional change that goes outside of the boundaries of the bounds of variability that that they have experienced in their histories or their evolutionary histories then they might actually uh, be vulnerable. recent Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change expresses a a high degree of of agreement that uh, that these directional changes are occurring and um, that it it is a a new thing within the scale of our experience in the modern world and within the scale of the experience of a number of species that will not be able to adapt.
5: So what other places around the world are we seeing these changes?
6: Well, uh that's a good question. Uh pretty much uh any places that people have studied uh intensely uh we're we're seeing changes occurring uh in the oceans, biological changes. But again at this point uh some of them are just observational. Now we're just seeing the beginning uh, of the kinds of changes, uh, say temperature-wise and weather-wise, that we might expect around Australia, and so the changes in the future, say 100 years from now, might be uh, well are projected to be uh, considerably larger. Other regions of the world where um, lots of ecological changes have been observed recently are is the North Pacific and the Bering Sea. Again, these are complex marine ecosystems, and it it takes uh, considerable research to try to distinguish between the various forces that are influencing them. But there have been oceanographic regime shifts uh, that have been studied in the North Pacific and the Bering Sea uh, that uh, it it looks like have caused considerable ecological changes. These are sort of temperature regime shifts, you might say.
5: Finally, these changes are going to have a big impact on on our own society, on human society, things such as um, fisheries and tourism and so forth. What can humans do to try and and minimise these effects and maybe even reverse them so that they go back to the way they were, so to speak?
6: That is the key question for us, Darren, I think. And uh, I think, again, we have to view these on the scale at which they are occurring. So climate change impacts are a global phenomenon. And, uh, it, you know, we can try to mitigate climate change impacts or try to prevent them from happening very severely in the future by reducing emissions, of course, uh, because that's what's ultimately causing uh, climate change impacts. What we need to do is, is look at the human interactions with ecosystems that are manageable on a local and regional scale, though, in order for us to per- to adapt our economies and our local and regional ecosystems to the effects of this global climate change impact. The overall resilience of the ecosystem can be influenced by uh, backing off on some of the local and regional impacts like fisheries and like local and regional pollution or by backing off on um, uh, emissions of CO2 into the atmosphere. So uh, whichever one you can have the most effect at, and, and some people say uh, really these are all slices of the pie, that we, we need to attack all of these these stressors and forces uh, simultaneously.
5: Well, look, Tom Oakey, thank you very much for uh, telling us all about the, the changes that are occurring, and hopefully in the next 50 to 100 years we can uh, take some pressure off the uh, marine ecosystem.
6: It's my pleasure, Darren. Happy to be here.
2: That was Diffusion's Darren Osborne speaking with CSIRO's Dr. Tom Oakey. And now for a musical interlude to both relax and invigorate your mind.
0: But we float
2: Leonardo da Vinci, the great 15th century Italian artist, is probably best known for the Mona Lisa, the painting of the lady with the enigmatic half-smile. But Leonardo was a true renaissance man, painter, sculptor, musician, as well as an architect, engineer, scientist, mathematician and inventor. He conceived many inventions, producing thousands of drawings and detailed plans, including things we would consider 20th century modern a helicopter and a hang glider, clockwork cars, tanks and other machines of war. For the last decade or more, a bunch of artisans living and working where Leonardo himself worked have been painstakingly modelling Leonardo's inventions from his copious notes and drawings. An exhibition of 60 of these models, called Leonardo da Vinci's Machines, an exhibition of genius, is touring the world and came to Sydney this month. Diffusion's Chris Stewart caught up with Luigi Rizzo, the lucky ex-physicist who got the job of bringing the exhibition to the English-speaking world.
1: Buonasera, sono Luigi Rizzo, Luigi Rizzo, that's my name. Um, Five years ago, I met the people that uh, built these machines, fell in love with the exhibition in Florence, and I decided that I wanted to come back to Australia, where I
7: originally come from. This is a travelling exhibition, it's going all around the world?
1: Yes, it is uh, travelling in English-speaking countries for the first time. Uh, I was fortunate enough that the artisans that built the machines could not speak English, and I offered my services to take it into the English-speaking world. So we've been to uh, Melbourne and Adelaide. This is the last stop in Australia, and then it's going to New Zealand and uh, America.
7: So this is an exhibition about Leonardo da Vinci and his his science and technology. Tell us a little bit about Leonardo and what was happening at the time.
1: Well, everybody knows that Leonardo is one of the greatest uh, artists, Uh, but in fact, he's the greatest uh, scientist of all time, Uh, elected, uh, nominated so in the year 2000 by various committees around the world, looking at, of the 2000 years, the person that contributed most to science and Leonardo was the one that unanimously came up.
7: So what was so great about da Vinci? Why do we consider him to be the best of all time? Because he
1: made some incredible discoveries in all the fields that he looked at not just in his specialized field. Uh, Of course painting was his work but because of it he wanted to find out a lot more of what he was painting, so the human bodies, and he made discoveries in anatomy. Uh, Painting mountains, he made discoveries in uh, um, geology. (laughs) And uh, his hobby, for example, was uh, studying birds and seeing whether we could uh, apply uh, the technique of flight onto humans. And we now stand in the flight room, surrounded by machines, conceived in Leonardo's thought, some of them actually built, uh, and uh, we, we can now see how far sighted he was in his studies.
7: So as you say, we're, we're inside the, uh, the exhibition at the moment. We're in the flight room. Something that, that many people know about da Vinci was that he supposedly invented the helicopter, and that was an amazing thing. We're standing beside something which doesn't look like a modern helicopter. Tell yeah, us about a, this It's
1: one. a little bit hard to see the connection between the, uh, the, the air screw and the helicopter, but the principle uh, is identical to the principle that an helicopter uses to, to lift. Um, once Leonardo understood that air was a fluid, he conceived of a, of a machine that could thread through the fluid by moving itself up.
7: The same as the way a screw goes through a piece of wood, this is threading itself through the air.
1: Or a, or a propeller through, through water. The air screw uh, planned by Leonardo da Vinci should be at least 12 metres in uh, diameter and uh, it would require the power of three men, very strong men, at the same time very light uh, because uh, his material at his disposal was also heavy.
7: So we've got this, this sort of screw-shaped sail sitting on top of it and the, uh, the, the strong but light men are running around in circle t- twisting this thing so that it twists up in the air. Is that the principle?
1: That is the principle. And to facilitate the lift-off, he has a special secret mechanism that uh, was only discovered recently by the artisans when they were trying to implement uh, this, uh, this design. Uh, there's a mysterious box that... Apparently, seems uh, performing no function at all, perhaps just creating heavier, uh, heavier weight. But uh, we now realise that inside it, he, he had hidden a spring
7: to give the initial thrust. To so he knew that he needed that extra bit of oomph.
1: He understood that that was probably not enough, and he moved on to the next concept, which was the gliding concept. As birds glide, he designed a glider that is actually functioning and can fly
7: flight is only just one of the, uh, the different examples of science and technology that da Vinci was involved with. In this room here, we've got a lot of, uh, a lot of clockwork things, a lot of pulleys and wheels. Tell us a bit about this room here.
1: Well, uh, as Leonardo um, moved from his uh, birth town of Vinci at the age of 17 into Florence, he uh, became aware of these great machines that were being used to construct Florence, building the monuments, the churches, the domes of the churches. Uh, Florence was experiencing a building boom. It was the, the apple uh, of, uh, of the uh, modern world at the time. Um, he was fascinated by machines and he began by copying uh, and drawing what he saw, and at the same time as uh, he, he was uh, improving on these, uh, these machines, so we 've got a number of machines here that uh, show how uh, he is uh, planning to lift columns, uh, drill holes, uh, move objects from one place to another, and uh, I can look at the, the, the autolock mechanism where we actually thought of a safety mechanism. Never thought of it before, and here is a man that thinks how to save lives.
7: The beautiful one over here, which looks like, a, looks like a wagon, but if you look at it closely, it's got all sorts of clockwork things inside. It's a big spring-powered car. Da Vinci actually designed this?
1: Yes, he did. And uh, it was used in theatrical stages to move a statue or an actor into a, a, a small area, uh, designed to... Uh, store enough energy on the springs, and then once released, it would move in a particular path. It's, it's the first car.
7: These are all models, some of which uh, are in working condition, some of them really are, are just for show. Did Da Vinci build many of these devices himself, or were they all just on paper?
1: Most of them were on paper. Uh, we guess that his pet subject flight, he probably took it to experimental uh, level. And might have even caused uh, injury to some uh, uh, assistant, um, and maybe for that reason it was never the news was never divulged. Um, we know for sure uh, that uh, the theatrical uh, machines were built because there was an application of use at the time. The war machines, however, were so far advanced so far fetched that Fortunately, it were never applied.
7: These are things like catap- spring powered catapults and so on.
1: Yes, and chariots with uh, deadly blades uh, and the tank, uh, even, even boats uh, full of cannons. He even came up with the concept of the submarine, but decided in his writing not to give away the technical knowledge of it because he thought it would cause too much uh, death. Yeah,
3: uh, I am a That was Luigi Rizzo with the Leonardo da Vinci Machines exhibition in Sydney, speaking with Chris Stewart. For more information about the exhibition, visit www.davincimuseum.com.au. Here's Sarah Blaskos, at your best, and this is for Genebot.
0: The phone. If you're hanging around me, girl, and even when you try to call, I know you stall. You climb another story tall. If only.
3: Celine's pressed the button, and that means we've come to the end of another half hour of Creamy Science and Jam. You've been listening to Patrick Ruby, Darren Osborne, Chris Stewart, Emily Fern, and myself, Mr. Ed Pollitt. Will Burr. Today's show was skillfully produced by Celine Steinfeld. Diffusion is recorded up in the fluffy clouds of 2SER Sydney, and broadcast all over Australia on the community network. To hear past episodes, head to www.diffusionradio.com. And to remind you all to keep your finger on the science pulse, here is Bo Brudolin on the djembe with his group, The Drop.